Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. In this episode, we're going to ramble about how we think of socializing these days. We'll discover new ways to dispose of old prescriptions. We'll announce a brand new Google product, the paper phone. We'll share some priceless answers to questions colleges ask to prospective students. And we'll celebrate a champion triathlete who happens to be in her 70s. The Old Dog's interview is with Thelma Zirkelbach, a diminutive lady whom you'd never suspect was a writer of steamy Harlequin romances. Stay with us. So, Jim, yes. tell me what's on your mind. Well, what's on my mind is socializing. Oh, you, are you taking me out to lunch or something? Well, or? I do that anyway. Yeah. See? Uh, what I'm talking about is socializing as we understand it in our generation, and perhaps the way uh, younger people understand it, they may not be the same thing. Ah, social media. Well, there's social about. media, yes. And so I am wrestling with that. So I'm thinking, how do many of us of our age uh, react to the, the concept of social media? And I recognize that there is a great value in social media. What do you think? Well, I participate, but on a limited basis. I, I have a Facebook account. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. use it pretty much to congratulate people on having another birthday. Yeah. That kind of, you know, a minor kind of contact. Yeah. Uh, I do use Skype, and I use FaceTime. I FaceTime mm -hmm. uh, with my daughter, who's away at college every Sunday. Okay. Uh, and I do like, I, I like Skype and FaceTime because you've got the visual. You have the person's face. So you can kind of read their body language. I think a lot of people our age are a little concerned that uh, they don't understand uh, social media or how to make it work. But I think that they, we can make a pretty clear distinction between what we consider social media and what we consider socialization. I think that social media is great for staying in touch. So you got a college roommate. You haven't seen him in 50 years, all right? But you can stay in touch. You can find out, hey, what's going on with you? And there's a geographic barrier usually. Right, a geographic, different right. Different parts of the country. You'd never be able to just go over there uh, this afternoon. On the other hand, I don't have very deep conversations with people that way, and I don't have the sort of serendipitous opportunity to interact and not know what the next uh, response will be. We like to sit down and chat with people uh, because it's it's harder for them to leave. <laughs> <laughs> if you make eye contact, you keep people listening to you. I don't think that each of these is mutually exclusive. I think that it's possible to stay in touch with friends who are geographically distant, but also to have more uh, in-depth relationships with people that I actually can uh, say hello to and sit down with. Well, you know, there, there's something that does come to mind. We have a president uh, who lives and dies by his tweets every day, projecting his personal opinion. Now, I I don't particularly want to project my worldview out there for people I don't know. What about in here? I mean, would you feel comfortable enough uh, sitting down with a, an acquaintance, let's say face-to-face, -face, and talking about your political opinions? You know, it would depend on who the other face was. Yeah, of course. Uh, my wife and I, we have an agreement that in certain family situations, <laughs> we don't 
bring up politics uh, because we already know where they stand and we know where we stand, and it's an instant argument. Yeah, I understand. Uh, politics and religion, but we talk in the family about sex all the time, of course. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have unused or expired prescriptions at home? I sure do. Well, odds are that you have something in your medicine chest that goes back a decade. Here's a suggestion for safely getting rid of old meds. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for October 22, 2019. There is a National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day sponsored by the Drug Enforcement Agency and local law enforcement. This twice-a-year event helps people dispose of drugs safely. Just bring your out-of-date or unused drugs to a collection center. There's a list of collection sites at the event's website, which is takebackday.dea.gov. One more time. Takebackday.dea.gov. In the past, officials told people to flush their unused drugs. Today, they recommend taking back drugs to keep them out of waterways. We should point out that the Take Back program isn't designed for illicit substances or items that could be dangerous to collectors, like insulin syringes. With the focus on unused prescriptions, the program has been very successful. Last spring, nearly 5,000 law enforcement agencies took part in the effort. They collected more than 468 tons of drugs. That's more than you take in a week, isn't it? Yes. For those who think that phones are too intrusive, Google offers an alternative phone that doesn't take calls. This item is from the Washington Post for October 28, 2019. Google's newest phone is just a piece of paper you print at home. You choose what apps you want on your piece of paper, such as notes, contacts, calendar, and even games. Then you fold it into a rectangle the size of a phone, and you turn the pages to access your apps. The paper phone is, of course, a joke, but with a purpose. It's part of a new package of digital well-being experiments by Google that are aimed at a digital detoxing for folks that are overwhelmed by the amount of tech in their lives. A spokesman for Google said, We hope these experiments inspire developers and designers to keep digital well-being top of mind when building technology. Of course, the irony is that during the same week, Google launched its newest real phone, the $800 Pixel 4. The phone features built-in radar technology that can be controlled by hand motions. I'm sure it comes with a lengthy user's guide designed to send anyone into digital overload. Just for grins, you may want to try one of those paper phones for a day just to see how long you can go without texting or playing online poker. You will probably enjoy a relaxing day, but just be careful about paper cuts. You know, we used to call this alleged paper phone a notebook. Hmm. Your grandkids may be going through the college interview process. As we've learned lately, the process is flawed. No kidding. Some parents have gamed the system to get their kids accepted. Gene Washington in the Washington Post for October 10th came up with some humorous answers to typical college interview questions. Question. Why do you want to go to school? Oh, it's the best school in a state where I'm not wanted. I was impressed by your essay. Ah, then I got my money's worth. 
What is your biggest weakness? I spend too much time studying. Mm-hmm. What would you bring to this school? Mostly Schedule Two controlled substances, not the really hard stuff. <laughs> Who is your biggest role model? Well, it used to be Roseanne Barr, but she lost a lot of weight. What do you admire most about our school? What school is this again? <laughs> Where do you see yourself in ten years? Within a couple of semesters of graduating. All right, you get the idea. We don't recommend that your grandkids use any of these answers unless their college acceptance has been prepaid by mom and dad. An Ironman competition combines a 2.4-mile ocean swim, followed by a 112-mile bike ride. And finally, running a full marathon. What you may not know is that there are folks our age who compete in this grueling event. This item is from the Washington Post for October ninth, twenty nineteen. Bobby Greenberg is seventy three and has participated in the Ironman World Championship six times. This year, she will be the defending champion in the seventy to seventy four age range. Like most women of our generation, she didn't grow up playing sports, but she was the kid on the playground who always wanted to race and play tag. She did play some competitive tennis as an adult, but competing in triathlons wasn't on her radar when she joined a gym in 2001. Her gym sponsored a mini triathlon, which she decided to enter. The only problem was she didn't know how to swim. So at the age of fifty-seven, she took swimming lessons. Despite her limited water skills, she finished in first place. She was hooked and continued her winning ways ever since. She trains at least fifteen hours a week and keeps it fun by training with friends. Good luck to Bobby Greenberg in her upcoming Ironman competition, or shall we say, Iron Woman. We'll be watching her on TV. Thelma Zirkelbach spent 50 years as a speech pathologist, but she also led a secret life as a writer of bodice-ripping romance novels. We caught up with Thelma in her new home, a retirement community where life is anything but boring. You've had an interesting career, ma'am.、Uh, let's start with、uh, your work as a pathologist, and how did you get interested in that field? In speech pathology? Yeah. Well, I needed to find a major when I was in college, and I happened to read an article in a Seventeen magazine about speech pathology. And I thought, well, I didn't want to be a teacher <laughs> or a nurse or a secretary, so I thought I'll just major in that. But I didn't really expect to spend much time doing it because that was the fifties, and I was planning to get married and have children and join the League of Women Voters. <laughs> <laughs> So,、uh, how long did you practice as a speech pathologist? Close to fifty years. Okay, so you were just in and out of that、yes. field, weren't you?、Uh, there's a comic that once said, "Speech pathologies should be easier to pronounce." <laughs> so you found fulfillment in something that originally occurred to you from reading an article in Seventeen magazine. Right,、mm -hmm. I loved every minute of it. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so you you really kind of had to follow. An instinct, then. So, depending on what article was in that magazine, I mean, you, <laughs> you could have been, been a、else. decorator. You could have been, you know. Yeah, but I wouldn't have been a very good one. I don't、uh, think. Skydiver. <laughs>、yeah. So, at some point, you left that career behind. 
And no, I never left it behind. I was doing another career at the same time. Oh, so okay. what other career was that? Are you talking about your writing career? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. When did that start? Well, I think it started in the 1980s. Um, I was going back and forth to visit my father in Austin, who was not doing very well, and I don't like to drive on the highway. So uh, one day I bought a romance novel to read on the bus, and um, I started reading them on the bus, and then I saw an article in the paper about Romance Writers of America, and I thought, well, I will do that. I want to do that, too. So I had two careers, really, although speech pathology was the one that took up the most time. So how did you put those two together? Um, you, you write at night, early in the morning? What, what did you do? I wrote at night. Um, gave up TV. <laughs> <laughs> now, I did see a couple of titles of yours. Stranger in Her Arms. Yes. Temptation. That's, that's pretty steamy stuff. Oh, Temptation wasn't a title. It was a, um, a Harlequin line of books that were sexier books than uh, this was more of a uh, romantic suspense mm. um, so I wrote for several different lines and that was your nom de plume Lorna Michaels yes my children's names are Lori and Michael ah. and so that's where I got the name so did you get a bunch of fan letters too some yeah <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's be honest. This is it's pretty a, steamy stuff, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> how, how did you figure out your plots? I don't know. They just sort of happened, sort of like going into speech pathology. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, did did you read a whole bunch of romance novels before you started uh, yes. writing? Yes, mm -hmm, I did, and I joined Romance Writers of America and um, formed a critique group with several other aspiring writers, and we met every other Friday and uh, critiqued each other's work. And I'm the only one who kept on with it, I think, of the six of us. Well, you obviously had a publisher. That's not an easy thing for a writer. How well, did you especially connect? Harlequin. I, I mean, yes. That's pretty much the top of the line, isn't it? It really, it really is. Um, I... Um, entered a contest that Romance Writers of America had, and I was a finalist. And so uh, an editor at Harlequin read my proposal, and actually she realized I had actually sent her a, a separate proposal for that book. And so she, after about a year, she called me, and they bought the book. It was called Blessing in Disguise. Hmm. And when was that? What year was that? Um, you would ask me that. 1991, I think, was when it came out. Are you still writing romance novels? No, but I wrote um, a memoir mm -hmm. after my husband died. I, I That was sort of the end of my romance writer's career. I and see. I wrote a memoir about his last year of life. Mm -hmm. And then I co-edited a book called On Our Own, Widowhood for Smarties, <laughs> which was a, uh, an anthology of, of articles about widowhood. And since then, I've written mostly personal essays. So that, that was a, a, an important transition for you, I gather. When your husband died, mm -hmm. your, your writing subjects changed. Yes. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. 
Well, I guess I sort of lost my enthusiasm for writing romance, and I really wanted to write a memoir, but I didn't really know how, so I took a course online from Gotham Writers Workshop in New York, and I wrote a memoir, and soon after I finished it, my uh, computer crashed, and there went the memoir. Oh, great. So, oh. <laughs> so oh. I had to write it again. Mm. But uh, We but are both writers, so <laughs> when you said that, it was yeah, like, oh. it was awful. Oh. It was like <laughs> losing your child. Oh, <laughs> But I rewrote it, and uh, eventually it got published. So were you able to recapture everything that you Pretty much, did yeah. before? Because mm-hmm. I, if, if I were doing that, I'd be thinking, what did I forget? Mm-hmm. What should I include? What did I leave out? I think actually the second version might have been better than the first, but I don't ah. know since I don't have it to compare. Interesting. Forced you to revise, mm-hmm. huh? So how often are you writing these days? Do you have set periods of time? Not necessarily, but right now I'm taking a senior memoir class that's sponsored by Imprint, and uh, it's held at the Jewish Community Center. So I've been taking that for a couple of years, and they give us prompts. uh, And... So I write, I write pretty regularly, but now that I'm retired, I retired you know, last year. That's interesting to me, because you're a published <laughs> Just writer. Just last year. Just last year, yes. Wow. <laughs> you're, you're a published writer, and but you're still taking workshops and still working on your craft, huh? Yeah, I, I enjoy taking workshops, and actually I also do a writing group um, with um, women who are transitioning from prison that live at Angela's house. It's a transition Place for women coming out of prison, and it's not a critiquing group. It's just that we, I give them something to write about, and they write, and then we share. I do that every Monday. Wow! So, w- what has that brought into their lives? Uh, that self-expression. Well, one of them got published in the Chronicle last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they wrote letters about what they were thankful for, and one of them mm-hmm. got picked up by. And actually, all wrote about second chances. They all what they wanted to but one of them got picked up by the Chronicle and uh, was published for Thanksgiving so I was really excited about that well obviously this involves some introspection on their part how has that played out in their lives I don't know because I don't always have the same people some of them are out interviewing for jobs or something else so I may have different people every time Uh, it just depends but they enjoy it they uh, I usually have six or seven women coming every week. Does anybody come up and say, could you read my novel? No. <laughs> no? No? Okay, don't. No, but some of them would like to read mine. Ah, <laughs> the, the romance stuff. Yeah. Yes, of course, of course. You mentioned that you are writing essays. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does one find your essays? Um, I've written essays that have been published in various anthologies, uh, and in literary journals. Um, so I'm trying to think of one offhand. I have one coming out in the N- University of Nebraska's journal called Prairie Schooner. Uh, should be out this month. Um, Is it tougher to get essays published than, uh, let's say, a book? I think it's tougher to get anything published. I really do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. I send out many, many things that get rejected. What is the subject that interests you most about writing essays? Is there a common thread among them? 
Um, I've written a lot about widowhood. Hmm. Um, I'm a burn survivor, so I've written about that. And I do volunteer work at Shriners Burn Hospital in Galveston. It seems to me, from listening to what you have to say, that whatever you decide to do, it comes around to some kind of connection to service. Wouldn't you say? I mean, your your pathology career led you to dealing with children, mm-hmm. uh, and your writing career uh, led you to dealing with uh, other writers, and especially people in need uh, to express themselves through writing. Would you say that underlying everything you do is this desire to be of service? I had never thought of it that way, but I think you're probably right. So it sounds like you are still very much engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you enjoy your life right now? Yes, I really do. True. Neat. Well, it sounds like you've landed in just the right place for you. Yeah. Uh, we do like to ask everybody we interview um, for advice that you'd like to pass on, because our listeners are in their 70s, 80s. Um, what's your advice about how to stay vital and, in, and involved with life? Well, I think you have to... Force yourself, if you're not a an outgoing person, I think you have to force yourself to, to get involved with uh, volunteering or joining a group of some kind. Um, I have a group that was originally a grief group, and now we're just a group of friends, and we go out for lunch every other week, and we play, ma- they taught me to play mahjong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so I think you have to find something that you can do, but I think you have to be prepared for times that are going to be difficult and just know that that happens. Maybe one last question. Are you ever tempted when you are talking with somebody to help them with their speech? Always. <laughs> <laughs> Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.